The Profit Constructors presents Construction Junction, the junction between accounting and construction. Please welcome our host, Tanya Schulte. Hey, and welcome back to our third episode of the Construction Junction podcast, where accounting and construction meet, as you just heard in our opener. We're very excited to bring you another great topic, which is about advising um, construction clients, which is what our firm, The Profit Constructors, loves to do. So whether or not you're also an advisor in the construction space or a construction company owner, all of these topics are curated just for you so that you can understand more about how a construction company can effectively be run. Today's topic is uh, more along the lines of what we were talking about last time, and it's about how to build out this advisory board that we often recommend that construction company owners would have around them. We for sure would recommend a core on that advisory board of an accountant, a lawyer, maybe an accounting partner like us, plus a CPA. Um, so someone who's knowledgeable in how your construction company runs, but we're not just accounting. We never sell accounting services just on their own. We also offer other high level advisory services to our clients. So again, we're part of that advisory team. We also recommend that you have a banker on that advisory board, someone who knows the construction industry and understands construction industry banking in particular, things like lines of credit, um, you know, and how to help you um, obtain the right funding at the right time. Um, and then of course we often, as our clients grow, help them uh, find a good bonding agent as well. So just a lot of great people that you wanna have on your team that aren't necessarily paid by you and on your team, but they're on your advisory board and are able to give you good advice and have their own area of expertise that might be outside of your own. Recently, our firm got to celebrate our fifth anniversary. It was a great celebration. Our team got together. We invited some of our friends and clients. We all got together on Zoom and celebrated that great milestone for our business. And because it was our the time that we normally set aside for our team to hold our um, monthly tips and tricks cafe, which is something else I'd encourage you to look into that the Profit Constructors does, we um, help our clients who are DIY clients, meaning they do all of their accounting and office management themselves, but we support them in other ways. Um, and so one of the ways we support them was with our tips and tricks cafe. And on our Tips and Tricks Cafe, which was our five-year celebration that we just recently did, the tip that I shared was that you should always surround yourself with a good group of advisors. And so that's what we're talking about always um, with our clients. Who's your lawyer? Have you vetted them? What is your engagement with them? Like These are the types of things that we begin to bring up with our clients to help them build their advisory board better than ever before. We'll start asking them um, what, what is included in your engagement with your current CPA and are there things that you might like to add to it that maybe you didn't even know you could ask for. And similarly with a lawyer, we may ask them, um, is this something that you've brought up with your lawyer? Is that something that maybe you think we should take to your lawyer to ask them about your subcontracts that you're sending out or subcontracts that a general contractor is sending you that you're signing? So as advisors, um, we're not going to give any legal advice that is well outside our scope, well outside our place. We shouldn't be doing that. 
but we will look at things and ask, have you asked your lawyer about this? Is this something you've spoken to your lawyer about? So today we'd like to um, dive into that topic of how a construction company knows which lawyer it needs at what time. So, you know, just as we talked about last month with my friend, Julie, not every CPA firm is the same. And that I think was a little bit surprising to some of our listeners and some of uh, the people that we were talking with, but I don't think it's as, as far of a stretch for people to understand that there are different types of lawyers. Still, sometimes I think it can be hard to parse out when do I need to start talking to a lawyer and a, how should I find the lawyer that knows the answer to the questions that I have right now? So we're going to dive into that and talk to my friend, Justin. One of the things I think is very important, and I just said my friend, Justin, and Justin is my friend. Over the last several years, we've built a relationship as friends. That relationship began because we were introduced as advisors to the construction industry. Someone that knew both of us said, hey, you guys both work in the construction world. I think you should, you know, I think it would be great for you guys to build a friendship. And that person was exactly right. It's been a good friendship, but it's also been a great way for us as we've gotten to know each other, being able to see each other's um, work, being able to see each other's longevity in this space. We've been able to become very comfortable with saying, hey, I have someone who needs your services and vice versa. Um, And that's one of the things I would encourage you to find in your advisory board are advisors who know other advisors in your industry have already taken the time to get to know them, to do some of the vetting for you, um, and are able to help you understand if this might or might not be the right person for you. Um, And again, because our industry is so specific with its needs and uh, the things that construction companies must have in order to be able to continue to function, It's just that much more paramount that when you're working with your advisory board, they understand the industry and they know others that they would recommend who also understand the industry when they, when we start stepping outside their area of expertise, you know, if our clients bring a legal question to us, while we can help them prepare preliminary notices, um, through our, the app partner that we do that with, um, we can't answer any particular legal questions for them. So as those legal questions come up, we're always going to want to find good partners that we can say, listen, I don't know the answer to that legal question, but I can help you find someone who does. So with that said, I really am excited to jump into the next segment and sit down and talk with Justin about what does he do um, and how you should um, view finding a lawyer for your construction firm. Are you a construction accountant or industry advisor who is enjoying the Construction Junction podcast but wish that you could dive deeper into the topics with industry peers and even learn more about how to serve your clients well? Then you might be interested in the Construction Junction Roundtable, debuting in March 2021. Our host, Tanya Schulte, will lead the Construction Junction Roundtable, where we bring together construction company advisors to learn how to grow their business. Additionally, this helps so that together we can market more effectively, bring high-quality accounting services, and other high-level advisory services in the construction space. 
Welcome. I'm here talking with Justin Najelic. Justin, thanks for joining us today. Uh, absolutely, Tanya. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to uh, having a discussion here. Hopefully, can answer some questions that you might have about the law, construction companies, and related entities looking for lawyers. How how to how to go about that process, etc. But I appreciate you asking me to to join, and I'm um, looking forward to it here. Awesome. Well, first, I just said your name, but tell us um, who you are, what your firm is, and really, what do you do? Sure. Um, my name is Justin Najalik. I'm an attorney here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm with the firm of Dunn, DeSantis, Walt, and Kendrick. We are actually based out of San Diego, California. I'm the only attorney we have on the ground here in Arizona, but we do a fair amount of work here in Arizona as far as areas of practice go. Uh, obviously do some work in the construction area and then general commercial litigation labor and employment law is one of the uh, specialized areas that I, I do some focus in as well uh, and really anything when it comes to any sort of contractual issue uh, enforcement action trying to collect on debts etc cetera, etc cetera, those are all things that are uh, directly up up my alley as well so I have a what I like to call a very wide uh, scope in terms of the practice areas that I that I touch on uh, and and my firm does the same thing. So to the extent that there's any need for anything in California, companies that operate outside of just Arizona, um, we do labor and employment law out there, uh, construction stuff. We've done some work for um, architects. So again, we have a very wide and broad practice range uh, when it comes to our firm as a whole, uh, not just myself. Very cool. So in the last podcast that we did, we were actually talking with a friend of mine named Julie, who is a CPA. And the focus of that was like, are all accounting firms the same? And she and I were laughing because mostly when you say I'm an accountant, people assume, just automatically assume that you do taxes, mm -hmm. which is not the case. So I don't think it's like that cut and dry that most people think all lawyers are trial lawyers or things like that. I think that people generally understand that lawyers have different specialties, but Maybe you can dive into that for us a little bit more and help us understand like what types of law do different lawyers practice and why? Why is there such diversity in that? Sure. Well, I guess the 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 starting point I think that makes sense here is is why is there diversity? Why are there different areas of law? Because of course there absolutely are. You have You've got bankruptcy lawyers, you have family law attorneys, you have labor and employment lawyers, you have commercial litigators, you have transactional attorneys. I could go on and on, right? Uh, and and it's because each of those areas, there is particular specialization that you need to a certain degree to really dive into different areas of law. So for example, let's look at you know the construction world. I'm sure everybody or most everybody who might be listening or watching this is familiar with the concept of a, a preliminary lien when you're doing work on a particular project, stop notices, um, lien enforcement, all of that kind of stuff. There, there are specialized laws. There are statutes that govern uh, lien enforcement, that govern um, placing mechanics and material men liens on properties, et cetera. And if you're somebody who, for example, works in the family law area, you're dealing with family disputes, you're dealing with divorces all the time, there's not any particular reason why you're going to go and start looking at other statutes and say, oh, I wonder what the preliminary 20-day lien statutes say. Just like a, an attorney who's going to be doing work in that realm, in that area of law, isn't going to wonder, okay, I, want, I wonder what the procedural process is to 
effectuate or to obtain a divorce decree in Arizona. Uh, you, you find your niche as you're going through your practice and start to you know, focus on that particular area. And a lot of times with lawyers, it takes some time to get there. You know, you come out of law school, you're like, oh, I'm going to do whatever somebody tells me to do at the law firm that I'm working at. And then you find as you're going through different areas, you find that niche. For me, like I said, doing construction stuff, enforcement stuff, doing labor and employment law is is where where my niche came down. So yeah, you you, you have lawyers who handle different things. I mean, if somebody calls me up and says, hey, I I have a friend who's going through a divorce and I'm sorry to use, continually use family law, but family law is kind of one of those areas that's really specialized. Call me and say, hey, family friend going through a divorce, they need an attorney. I'm, I'm going to sit there and go, yeah, not going to touch that, but here's some people that you can talk to because, because of that reason. So, and you'll see firms that specialize in particular areas, uh, smaller firms in particular, you'll see sometimes do only family law or only do bankruptcy law. As you get into larger firms, you'll see that there's a more diverse practice area because you have different attorneys. Uh, so if I have a partner at my firm in San Diego who is going to handle who handles you know ins- insurance defense type cases, maybe that's not up my alley, but that's something that you know an attorney within my within my firm can handle. So you'll see different firms based on size, perhaps having specialization, perhaps having a broader net of practice areas. Um, but but one way or another, you want to make sure that whenever you're dealing with a lawyer, you're finding a lawyer who has the knowledge and, and the experience in the particular area of law that you're looking at, uh, especially, again, when you're talking about uh, an area where there is specialized laws that govern things and you can't just assume you know, general case law or things like that might 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 apply. You know, a standard breach of contract might be one thing in one realm, but then if we're talking about Again, in construction law, you might say, well, this person breached the contract. They didn't pay me. I want to go enforce it. Well, did you do everything you needed to have lien rights, et cetera, et cetera, before you can just go and and, and go through those statutory steps? So how does that develop? And in particular, how did that develop for you? Like what brought you to your particular niche? Well, <laughs> that's a it's a good question. And and I, I could probably write a book about that, frankly. I've I've uh, when I first started practicing, I did a lot of uh, creditor enforcement type work. So I represented a number of uh, financial institutions, for example, uh, that would lend money out. Money doesn't get paid. You have to go through a foreclosure process. Sometimes if you're looking at, okay, I want to seek a deficiency after we foreclose, there's still money owed. In certain circumstances in Arizona, you're allowed to do that. So we'd pursue that. And, and it just kind of developed along that line, I guess you can say. I started doing that type of work and then started doing within one of my firms more commercial litigation work, Um, started getting a taste of some labor and employment stuff, and then ultimately found a a position that was available at another firm specifically related to labor and employment law. So went and started working there uh, and then eventually got tired of the 80, 90 hour a week grind, not seeing my family, et cetera, et cetera. And as much as I loved working there and loved that work, decided to branch out on my own, uh, went out, practiced on my own for a little while before uh, syncing up here with DDWK, who I'm now with. So it's a lot of a lot of trial and error, I would say. You know, you find areas of law that are interesting to you. You find areas of law as an attorney that aren't interesting to you. And, and hopefully you're in a position, a situation where you can, at least to some degree, dictate 
what type of work you're getting even earlier on, um, asking, you know, senior attorneys to start steering you towards particular areas as you're still developing your own book of business and what have you. Yeah. Uh, so it, it can be, it can be by happenstance sometimes. Uh, I know some attorneys that, you know, just went out of law school, started working for a firm uh, in a practice group of, you know, a bankruptcy practice group. One of my best friends does a lot of bankruptcy work and he's just done bankruptcy for the past 13, 14 years now. Uh, yeah. Was that by choice or just kind of by circumstance? Probably a little bit of both. But uh, yeah, there are a lot of different things that come into play when you're going through the process of trying to identify an area of practice that you want to really particularly focus on and what have you. Awesome. That's I love hearing people's story. So that's cool. So kind of in that same vein, I've heard you mention a couple of things like um, labor and employment law and um, liens, preliminary notices, things like that. Besides those two things, are there other, and, and keeping in mind too, like Michael, uh, that we'll talk to here in just a minute, I mentioned that is uh, the person that we're going to kind of bring into this discussion, who is a, a construction company uh, owner. Um, they work more on the service side of things. So less in maybe a new residential or commercial building, but they're doing a lot of like repair and maintenance type of work. Um, but what types of things would all of those types of construction companies, so if we're talking about ground up building or repair and maintenance, what types of law might those types of companies run into that they'll need the assistance of a lawyer, say, as they grow? Sure. Well, I mean, you, like you said already, I've, I've hit on a couple of them. Uh, when you're looking at lien rights, um, enforcement rights, stop payments, things like that, you want to have an attorney that you're able to you know, reach out to to make sure that you have everything, a full understanding of how that process works. Now, I know a lot of when it comes to pre-liens, for example, a lot of companies use uh, third party, third parties to do that. That that certainly works. It never hurts to have, even when you have a third party doing it, an attorney look over what that third party is doing. Uh, there can be intricacies that maybe a third party who's not necessarily based in Arizona and is going through the steps of doing just, you know, kind of mass mailings of preliminary liens and what have you might not know. I've encountered that a few times where I've had to clean up some stuff for a client that a, a larger third party didn't do entirely correctly. Um, you, so you definitely want to look at that type Thank of stuff. For tuning do in I have everything junction. in order that I need to find in order out more about the to make sure that I have as a, as a company email, hello at the everything in place so I can have as much ability to enforce whatever rights I have uh, that I can. Uh, you don't want to do something incorrectly with your pre-lien and all of a sudden not have a have a lien and then you just have a straight contract claim, right? Yeah. Um, when it comes to even going further down the road, you know, enforcement, let's say that there's, you know, a, a property that goes into, you know, bankruptcy, for example, uh, you might end up looking and, and having a bankruptcy attorney if you're a creditor and the debtor, the owner of the property is in bankruptcy, there are different rules that come into play, different circumstances that come into play then. Uh, so there are a lot of companies that even if you don't expect to need it and you don't need it for yourself, might need an attorney with some expertise in the bankruptcy realm to help walk you through a claim that you might have against an entity or uh, an individual that's in bankruptcy. Uh, labor and employment is a huge one, uh, especially with construction companies. You have, you know, Department of Labor, the Federal Department of Labor has always had a very fine focus uh, and an, an, an intent focus on the, on the construction industry when it comes to things like the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, ensuring that overtime is being properly paid. 
We even look at what we had last year in 2020, the FFCRA, the Family First Coronavirus Relief Act, that had the emergency family medical leave in place that was similar to, but a little bit different than what we have in Arizona for paid sick time. Uh, so you want to make sure that when you're dealing, when, when you're looking at wage and hour type stuff, that everything is in order, you're appropriately keeping time. And then you're going to have those labor and employment type related issues that come up from time to time with, for example, uh, workers' compensation. Somebody gets injured on a job. Uh, a lot of times that can just go pretty smoothly. If there aren't any questions factually or legally, it just goes through a carrier and it gets taken care of. But there are instances where it doesn't just get taken care of. I've had situations, and this is with a labor and employment, or excuse me, with a construction company, a guy who was employed by the company brought in a friend of his one day just to said, hey, why don't you just come help us out? Nobody picked up on it. He wasn't on payroll. He got injured. And then there was this big dispute over, okay, well, is he supposed to be covered under, uh, you know, the, the company's, is the company responsible for this? The company had a PEO. Should the PEO somehow be responsible for this? What's the situation? Weird things like that can come up. So, if I and and that's a long answer to your question. I'm sorry, I'm a lawyer. I like to talk, right? But uh, but but you're you're going to want as a construction company, you're going to want to make sure you have an attorney that can look at your stuff and say, yeah, your labor and employment stuff is all in order. You're doing this correctly. Give you updates on any changes in law. You're going to want to have an attorney that's going to be able to advise you on construction related things, lien rights, enforcement, etc. Um, but I would say that those are probably your two primary ones. And 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 generally, if you have an attorney that knows the ins and outs of the, the construction realm and what would be important to a construction company, at least, they'd be able to help guide you through the other aspects of, of your business uh, that might need you know, to be looked at. So if you have, like I have clients that do construction work that I do some lean stuff for, et cetera, they'll come to me and say, hey, we have this new, uh, you know, this new contract that we're getting into and this company, it's a larger company, they wanna use their contract, can you take a look at it? Usually that that type of attorney has been experienced enough with different types of contracts within the construction realm and what have you that they can help advise you on that. But you just want to make sure that you have those areas covered. I would say that those are definitely the two most important things I'm looking at from a construction company perspective in terms of what I want to make sure I have shored up. And that is, can I get paid? And do I have everything in order that I need to have in order to make sure I get paid and I can pursue any way to get paid that I can? And Am I going to, do I have all my labor and employment stuff done correctly? Have I properly classified employees versus contractors if I'm using independent contractors? Uh, things like that. So diving off into that, I have a couple of questions brewing in my brain, but let's start here. Because uh, something that you brought up, I think is actually pretty pertinent to Michael's situation. How does a construction company or a service maintenance and repair type of company um, how can they kind of hedge their bets and make sure that anybody that they're paying as a 1099 subcontractor, they're not paying them, to, you know, as a W-2 employee, how do they parse out what is what? How do they make sure that they're not going to be either coming up against maybe workers' comp situations and or, uh, you know, anything like you said with the Department of Labor that somebody's going to say, no, that person technically should have been your employee? Sure. And, and when you look at that situation, when you look at classifying an individual as an employee versus an independent contractor. The thing that can be a little difficult is there's really no bright line rule. It's going to come down to the circumstances in each particular situation. But the major thing that 
government entities, whether it's a state level or a federal level, really tend to look at is the amount of control that the employing agency, if you will, or the the employer, quote unquote, if you will, right. uh, has over the worker's uh, job. So, for example, if the employee or if the individual, the worker is required to commit all of their working time to a particular entity, that's going to tip the scale towards that's an employee. If yeah. they have to, if, 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 if a company calls them and says, hey, we have this job tomorrow at 9 a.m., if that person can say, um, I can't do that, that's going to tend to tip the scale towards it being an independent contractor. Independent contractor is not just a fancy term. The word independent is in there for a reason. And that person generally is going to have the ability to control when they do work, what work they do, who they do work for. And one of the things that that people, uh, companies, particularly in Arizona, can look at is actually a statute that I helped draft and put through uh, the, 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 the legislature. And that's uh, a statute called the Declaration of Independent Business Status. And I believe, off the top of my head, I believe it's ARS 23-1601, I believe, uh, maybe 1901. But regardless, what we were trying to do when we set up that statute was basically provide a roadmap for companies. And we did have a particular focus on the construction concept when we did it, but it could apply across the board. And and basically say, here are the factors that come into play when there's a independent contractor relationship. So what Declaration of Independent Business Status um, statute says is, if the parties enter into a written agreement that has certain um, terminology in there, and then there are certain categories where the independent contractor says, yes, you know, A, B, C, and D, I, I'm controlling my hours. I acknowledge that I'm not covered by workers' comp. Uh, and those are just a couple of examples. If, if all those circumstances are met and the contractor and the employing unit, the company signs off on it, then it creates presumption that there is an independent contractor relationship. Now, that's never going to automatically make an independent contractor relationship. That's still going to depend upon the circumstances, the control that the employing unit exerts over the worker's time, manner, method of work, et cetera. But it's at least a tool that a company can use to, again, create the presumption. So if the Department of Economic Security uh, here in Arizona, for example, comes in and says, well, you didn't pay unemployment insurance or unemployment tax so that you know you're paying into the unemployment system for these particular individuals a company could say well we have this declaration of independent business status from them so there's a presumption that they were independent contractors and not employees and then it's going to be up to the agency to say well here's why you're wrong they are employees because you control their method of work you control their hours of work whatever the case might be right. but that's a tool that 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 employers can use to try to help a again use that as a roadmap to say okay are we meeting these criteria with these contractors and if we're not then we need to think about how we're classifying them uh and then also again it provides that assuming you are meeting those those factors it provides some protection against at least state agencies coming in and questioning that type of relationship right and i think what it often boils down to one one of the uh words that i I tend in my own brain to associate it with is their autonomy, 
yep. you said, are, how are, are they being directed by the company or do they have a, quite a bit of their own autonomy to say, I can't be there at that time. Uh, I will use these products when doing it. I will purchase them myself, that kind of thing. So. Exactly. No, absolutely. And, uh, and autonomy is absolutely a perfect word to use because that's really what is at the, at the heart of an independent contractor setup, or that type of relationship. They're not supposed to be dependent on this third party, the contracting party, the company to tell them when to work or to tell them how to do the work. They're supposed to, they, they can be dependent on that company to say, hey, we have this job for you. You do it needs to be done by this date. That's fine. Uh, but if they say you have to be here from this time, to this time, taking away some of that autonomy that starts to whittle away at that independent contractor relationship and starts making it look a lot more like an employment relationship. Got it. Um, and one other question that I had thought of earlier, we were having a conversation about lawyers sort of giving some guidance and direction. What do you see as a good amount of communication between lawyer and client and who should initiate it? You know, I mean, I think sometimes clients assume that lawyers just are automatically going to take care of things on the back end that maybe lawyers don't assume. So how, how do you view that relationship? Well, I guess it kind of depends on what the particular circumstance is. And how about that for a perfect lawyer answer, right? It depends. <laughs> right. Um, and as, as a lawyer, though, I, I, I do believe, and, and I think that most lawyers would, would agree with this, that it's the lawyer's responsibility to really lay out what the scope of representation is, what is being done, what could be done, um, et cetera, et cetera. So let's say, for example, if a client just sends me a, a contract, right? And, and they say, hey, I have a, here's a new contract that I have. I need you to do my, you know, my pre-lean notice, right? Or they send me a pre-lean that's already done. They say, hey, this person stopped paying. I want to start the foreclosure process. Okay. You give me that, you give me that information. You can expect that I'm going to run with it. And you can expect that I'll say, okay, if we're using the second example of enforcement, next thing you'll hear from me is, okay, let me pull up a draft up a complaint or let me draft demand before we send and file the complaint and see where we go from there. Next thing you'll hear from me is here's a draft of it. Let me know your revisions. And then we go from there. Now, if you just send something without giving some sort of instruction, again, that should at least uh, result in a response from the attorney going, well, what do you want me to do with this? I had a client recently say, hey, got this in the mail, send it to me. And I was like, great. Well, this isn't really directly related to what I'm handling for you right now. So what do you want me to do with this? And then we engage in that dialogue and figured out what steps need to be taken. So I think that Clients can, to a certain degree, rely on the attorneys to make sure that the client is aware of what's being done and what needs to be done. But of course, that necessitates the client first saying, hey, here's this and this is why I'm sending this to you. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and again, depends on the circumstance, because in litigation, for example, if you're in a lawsuit, I tell clients this all the time. You might go a few weeks, you might go a month without hearing from me because that's how the process sometimes works. You know, if there's if we're in you know early stages of litigation and we file you know a, a complaint, they get an answer or they file an answer. Well, okay, I'll send that to my client, but then we're not going to see a whole lot of activity in the case for a little bit. So you might not hear from me for some time. What I also tell my clients is if you don't hear from me and you want to talk at any time, call me, email me, whatever the case might be. Because just because you're not hearing from me doesn't mean that 
you are not still at all times welcome to reach out and say, hey, I just want to know what's going on. And maybe my response is going to be, there hasn't been much going on. That's why you haven't heard from me, but never hesitate to ask the question. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, attorneys are there to provide a service to their clients, either way you cut it. And I think clients need to remember that um, you are the one that dictate how the relationship should go. If you want more communication, great. Uh, if you, if, 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 if you're okay, not hearing things for a little while, then, then so be it. As long as again, the attorneys laid out that that might happen, but that doesn't necessarily mean that nothing's you know going on with the case. So that doesn't mean that it's not on the radar. It just means that there's nothing actively happening. Sure. What about in the case, because you, you had, this kind of is what brought it to my mind. You had mentioned it earlier. What about in the case of where maybe there's some new legislation that would affect some of your clients, um, you know, and how would that communication go from your firm out to some of your clients? Um, a lot of times what we'll do is, and, and we've been doing this pretty frequently, particularly with everything going on last year with COVID and what have you, we send out email blasts. So we have a firm list. And at this point now we've got kind of like a Arizona, California, and then a full one, right? But we'll send out email updates uh, on various laws. I know with, with our California office, there's been a lot of, especially because California, there's been a lot more activity, I think, in terms of restrictions and what have you than Arizona. They're sending they especially early in the in the in the pandemic, they were sending those out on a you know weekly, bi-weekly basis with updates about how businesses can kind of maneuver through uh, COVID. Uh, we've done similar things with our Arizona clients for some of the you know COVID-related changes in federal law, uh, like some bankruptcy changes that have occurred. Uh, when Arizona's, for example, the paid time off, the paid sick leave law went into effect a couple of years back. I did something similar in that I sent out updates to, to clients. Um, that a lot of times is how a client can expect to get some information about, about updates in the law, but that doesn't necessarily happen with everything because you don't know what every update happens. I mean, we have a legislative process that goes on for quite a while. We have case law that's constantly changing. Um, so a lot of times changes in the law come up when the actual issue comes up for a client. Yeah. Uh, but it, another thing that I, I tell my clients too, is like, if you hear of something that's changed, feel free to reach out and say, Hey, have you heard about this? And if, if you have, does this affect me? And if you haven't, am I hearing right information as a client that this is something that's you know new and in place? Um, so you can, again, sometimes that major news will get conveyed through those, those blasts. But, but a lot of times, again, especially with my practice, somebody retains me to represent them to, you know, in, enforce a contract, somebody breached a contract. Okay. You've hired me. I'm going to pursue that for you, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should expect that I'm going to be sending you updates about other areas of law. Maybe you'll get them through our firm, you know, mail blast. Maybe you won't. Now, when I have clients that I have longer relationships with that, I know, Oh, this rings a bell for this particular client. Then I might send something more individualized there. Uh, yeah. But a lot of the time, you know, the, the everybody should be, especially in their particular area of, of, of work should be uh, cognizant, keep an ear open all the time for anything that might be changing um, because that's best business practice just in general uh, and, and don't necessarily just rely on a third party is going to bring it to your attention and always ask questions. That's what I tell people all the time. Always ask questions of your lawyers. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty similar to what we said last uh, month when we were on the podcast with Julie. Pay attention to what's in your scope of work whenever you get an engagement from a professional is one piece of it. And the other thing is, it's good to have a lot of individuals on your advisory board team, if you will, surrounding you so that if I hear of something, you know, I might be able to bring to my client's attention that they, you know, need to pay attention to what's going on with in like the FFCRA that you mentioned earlier. Um, but I would maybe also suggest to them that they speak to their lawyer about how that's going to affect them from the law standpoint. I can, I can maybe give them advice from an accounting standpoint, but not always from the law standpoint. So it's good to have multiple team members being able to bring up those, those issues as they arise so that we can look at it from all sides. 100%. I do the same thing all the time when I have, especially if I have, you know, like a, there's a settlement that parties are entering to, into and my client is part of that settlement and they're going to be getting some money or they're going to be paying money, whatever the case might be. I tell them all the time, I go, you need to talk to your CPA, you need to talk to your accountant about any sort of tax ramification here because I don't know. I just don't know. I, I can tell you whether I think based on the facts, the law, the circumstances, this is a good deal for you or not, whether it makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. But I can't tell you how much you're going to be paying tax wise on this. And nor am I going to pretend like I could uh, right. or try to try to try to fake my way through that. That wouldn't be doing anybody a service. Uh, it would be doing the exact opposite. So 100% bounce things off whatever resources you have because something can affect taxes one way, but might affect you legally the other way, whatever the case might be. Yeah, absolutely true. All right, let's take a quick pause. And then I'm dying to hear uh, some questions that Michael has for you as well. So we'll pause for just one second. We'll be right back. If you would like to share your company or product on the Construction Junction, email hello at theprofitconstructors.com to become a sponsor. Welcome back. Uh, Michael Kaminsky with Superior Contracting and Maintenance is joining us. Michael, before we dive into some of your questions, tell us about yourself and Superior. What do you guys do? Where are you located? Tell us all that information. Sure. So we've been around for about 10 years. Uh, for the first eight years, this was a, kind of a single person operation. My brother, Eric Kaminsky, started the company and we cater to property management companies. So whereas you have construction firms, a lot of the time, I think, you know, everyone's familiar with kind of general contracting work, uh, large scale commercial. Um, a lot of people are familiar with your uh, Sparky services that are like an electrical company or superior plumbing. Um, we kind of went for what many people may deem the bottom of the barrel, which is property management. Um, property management companies can be difficult to work with. Uh, they require high degree of communication, uh, it's a massive volume of work. And because they're providing uh, such volume of work to most of the contractors they work with, the margins are typically thinner. They're expecting discounts on the pricing. Um, we love this industry though. Uh, we think it's fun uh, because number one, it, there are those barriers to entry. So, you know, in order to even deal with working with property management companies, you have to be able to float your materials and labor costs for 30 to 60 days. Um, so number one, in order to have competitors, they have to have the bankroll to compete. Number two, they have to focus on customer service, which kind of feels a little bit like the antithesis of what many of our competitors do focus on, because a lot of the time we're still competing against Joe the plumber and nothing to knock Joe. Joe is great and he's a craftsman and he's good at what he does. However, in order to churn massive volume, we we kind of approach things as if we're a bit more of a tech firm. 
Um, and we're just saying, hey, how can we handle as much throughput as possible while providing that regal cinema experience? I love um, that. Do you find too that, because uh, you said there's some barriers to entry, do you find that once you have sort of gotten past some of those barriers, there's a lot of networking that you can do and you can really make some good relationships with those property managers? Yes. So whereas an owner, right, there's, there's a couple things here. An owner, someone who owns a home that places it with a property management firm, they care significantly about, um, is the work getting done right and is at the lowest cost possible? Um, unfortunately, and I think this is just, uh, it's by the nature of how property management firms work, honestly, by the nature of how most large corporate companies work, um, right? If you're an executive at a company, the goal is to drive value creation, but unfortunately, a lot of the time, the goal also becomes to not put your foot in your mouth. So you'll do whatever it is that makes sense. You can justify the decisions you make. Oh, we hired E&Y Consulting, and that's why we decided to do this this way. Um, kind of similar with property management. Property managers are looking for a high degree of communication so that they can establish a degree of credibility in the eyes of their owners. We actually love this because if it's done right, we are given the opportunity to educate property managers on how construction actually works. Here's how plumbing works. Here's how mechanical works, HVAC. And rather than us saying, oh, you know, this is how much we're going to charge you for whatever service we're providing you with, what we're charging them for is without, hopefully this doesn't sound terrible. What we're charging, we have list prices, but what we charge them for is happenstance compared to the real value they're getting out of us. By working with us, they're gaining credibility. Yeah. Um, back to the example of Joe the plumber. Joe the plumber may say, oh, we need to fix this uh, this main line that's coming into your house because it's leaking. But that that tells you where the issue is, but where did it come from? And, and how could it come up in the future? And this sort of thing. And this is where we spend our time focusing on communicating. Here's, here's what your issue is. Here's your short-term solution. And then on the longer term, here's preventative approaches you can take in order to avoid this. Um, if you do want to go with the short-term solution, here's what your owner may be looking like in terms of a, a future NPV cost. Um, right. Our goal is to serve the owners through the property managers. Um, I love that. And I think what you said, when you said, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, I don't think it sounds terrible at all because it's something that I'm a firm believer in, which is in value pricing. I'm not pricing based on um, maybe my time or the products that I'm bringing to the job. I'm pricing based on the value that I bring to the client. Yeah, I think that's well said. That is that is what we aim to offer. Absolutely. All right. What questions did you have for Justin on the law now that we've kind of dove off into value pricing, which is a whole different scenario and, and discussion? Yes. Yeah. So the first question I have, it may, I, I could see some, some versions of how this wouldn't just happen in our industry, but our, our first question is, and we do have this happen at least on a monthly basis. So several of our owners, right? Well, when I say several of our owners, our customers are property management firms. They manage for properties given to them by owners, whether LLCs or uh, individuals, whatever it may be. From time to time, these owners will take their homes and place them under new management. From time to time, when that happens, we'll still have an outstanding invoice list of possibly uh, between $100 to maybe $6,000. These invoices didn't get posted on the owner's account in a timely manner or 
there was a, a falling out with their property management firm that happened with some degree of urgency. So the houses that they once managed, they no longer manage. When this happens, more often than not, our property management firms tell us to follow up with the owners to collect payment. That makes sense. And it's what we do regularly. But from a from, from kind of an order of operations perspective, we receive our approval to do the work we do from the property management firm. So the question here is, what is the actual legal string of liability? Should we, you know, is, is the owner the ultimate party that is responsible for these outstanding invoices? Or do we have a leg to stand on working, you know, speaking to the property management firm if we do have trouble uh, working with those owners, which oftentimes we could. I mean, if, if you thought you had paid for all the outstanding invoices on one of your rental homes, and all of a sudden some contractors reaching out saying you owe us, you know, even $600, it's, this doesn't make sense. Why is this the case? So it's a, it's, it's a touchy subject when we have to bring it up with owners and just trying to find out where does liability really land and, and what's the best course forward for a firm like ours. Right. Well, and, and <laughs> let me give that lawyer answer again. I'll say that it depends uh, because the first place I would look is your company's contract, which with, which I, excuse me, with who I would assume would be the property management company. So I'm assuming you guys contract directly with the property management company. The contract says something to the effect of, you know, our company will provide services uh, based on your approval, you know, at these rates, whatever the case might be, right? Um, but that contract in one way or another should spell out who's who has the ultimate financial responsibility for anything that's done by your company. My presumption would be that you would have an absolute right to go and pursue that company directly because the property management company is who you guys actually contracted with. Um, now, obviously there are, there is reason and there, there's good reason why you'd be able to go directly against the, the property owner, because obviously that's the company that ultimately, or the, the, the individual or company, however they have that set up that ultimately received the benefit of the work that you did. So they absolutely should be paying it one way or another. Now, whether or not that's the course that you guys should be going. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. To that. At the end of the day, you want to get paid. Whoever you're going to call to get paid, you're fine calling to get paid, I'm sure. But I'm sure you look at it from perspective too of, well, we don't like having these issues with these homeowners. They, we, we're like a random company calling them as far as they're concerned. So we'd much rather go right to the construct or excuse me, the property management company. My suspicion would be you'd have an absolute right to do that. Um, and if a company says, hey, just go talk to the owner about it, again, depending on what your contract says, I would think that you would have the ability to say, no, we don't have to. You contract with us. If they didn't pay you guys for that, that doesn't mean you're not still responsible to pay us for it. Sounds like you should go talk to the property owner and then come and pay us. Um, I, I, I see it being like that. It sounds to me like those property management companies might just be trying to pass the buck. They're like, ah, we're not doing anything for that owner anymore. What good is it for us to get paid by them, all we're doing is a favor to the, the, the company that did the work. Uh, legally, is that something they have a leg to stand on to tell you to do? I, I would guess not. But again, the true answer is going to be, it depends on what's in that contract. But unless there's something weird in the contract, my suspicion would be that that property owner 
uh, excuse me, the property management company is on the hook just as much as the property owner. Michael, do you guys have a lawyer that reviews the contracts that you create with the property management companies? We have a law firm we work with that reviews contracts we create with private individuals or large entities, um, if it involves new construction or something of that nature. For the type of boilerplate contracts that we have with the majority of these property management companies, we haven't, uh, we've been reviewing them in-house up to this point. Uh, I don't believe anything we've seen. I think there's two things going on there. Um, one positive, one negative. The positive is we haven't seen any issues with it on anything that we've been working on so far. Uh, the negative is there's probably hidden risk that we've signed off on that could be an issue at a later point in time. When we're reading through these contracts, we're mainly focused on um, non-compete clauses and these sort of things. Um, but because sometimes the customers we work with aren't truly the end customer. Sometimes it's more of an aggregator uh, that'll happen from time to time. But uh, yeah, there's probably a whole lot of buried risk on these property management contracts. I know factually that some of them say, you know, if we stop working with you, you must collect all outstanding funds from the owners. And I know that is in a few of them, but uh, we don't have it well documented across our our customer base. We have got about 180 customers. And of those, uh, I think probably 30 to 40 of them are under contract with some sort of boilerplate agreement. So to answer your question, no. This is something that actually right now our firm is struggling with. And I'd, I'd love to hear your input on this, Justin. How does a company, when it's in these stages of growth, as both Michael's company and my company is, how do we determine? Because we're the, the kind of in the same boat. We use a boilerplate document um, that I think we downloaded from a legal website, right? <laughs> There's a few of those around. Um, but how does a company, at what stage of growth, and, and what would be the markers for determining when you really do need to have an attorney review even your boilerplate documents and make sure that that's going to work well for you? Well, I mean, whew, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, my lawyer answer is if you're going to sign anything, you should have a lawyer look at it. If there's going to be if there's going to be enough risk there for you, right? Um, if if let's use the example of you know the boilerplate contracts that Michael might have with some of these uh, property management companies. Okay, these property management companies. I'm assuming they're sitting out there going, "We're going to use our agreement. We're not going to change a darn thing about it because hey, if if this company doesn't like it, there's another one down the road we can go talk to about doing this work for us." So, I I've had people ask me, "Well, do you think they'll negotiate this?" I go, "Look, every contract's negotiable until you find out that it's not right. Like if you ask and they say no, what happened? They said no, and that's it." If you then you recess the risk and say, well, should I go ahead with this anyway, knowing that risk is there? And and looking at that that latter part that I brought up there is what I would look at, you know, in, in Michael's situation or in any boilerplate contract situation. And that is, even if it's going to be what it is, and we know we're dealing with an entity that won't change it, or we've asked and they've said no, well, then what are we exposing ourselves here to? Um, and and for if we use the example of okay, what happens if a relationship between the property management company and the, the property owner ends and there's money that's still owed and this property management company, let's say it's in the contract that says if if a owner is no longer you know engaging our company, if there's outstanding amounts owed, you construction company um, or you know our, our maintenance company, you have to go directly to the homeowner. First of all, it strikes me as odd, but let's put that part aside. 
Well, then you want to know that's there before you get into that relationship. So you can sit there as you're kind of going through and go, okay, well, we don't want to have this one particular owner owe like $35,000 or something, you know, high end number, because we know if something happens with that relationship, then all of a sudden it's incumbent on us to go and try to enforce it. So I, I don't know that you can really use any benchmark when it comes to, okay, should this is boilerplate or, you know, we're still small. Maybe we don't need to worry about getting an attorney to look at this. I think you look at it more from the, how important is what we're looking at right here to the viability and to the, the day-to-day of our business? Is this something that, you know, we're entering into this contract and this is going to be something that we're doing business with this person or this company on a daily basis? Is it going to be a weekly basis? Is it going to be monthly basis? Is it, Hey, we, we right now think we're only going to get like five grand worth of work from this company anyway. So we're not going to go pay an attorney a grand to look at this. I, I think it all boils down to the, the cost and benefit of having an attorney look at it and whether what you're dealing with is something that uh, is, is, is sufficiently uh, substantive that you have risk there that you need to make sure you're fully aware of. And again, my straight lawyer answer is it's all the time, but from practical perspective, it might, it might not necessarily be all the time, but I think you have to kind of look at it on a case by case basis, as opposed to a, okay, well, last year we did this much business. So now we need to have a lawyer look at everything. Sure. I agree with that. And I think, uh, Another thing that just because I'm an accountant, so this is where my mind goes, I would look at that from two sides, not only like how much is the amount of work that we anticipate doing, but also because I've so often been involved in the collection side, how much administratively would it cost us to track down whatever that amount of work is going to be, Mm -hmm. right? So um, if at whatever point, like you were saying, Michael, if it's $100 worth of work that they're foisting off on you guys, is it even worth it administratively? the cost of that from an administrative standpoint to go chase down a hundred dollars of work that maybe you got left on the books. Is that even worth it at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every, everything when you're dealing with lawyers, a cost benefit analysis, I tell, I, I like, there's, there's really no other way to cut it because, you know, 95% or whatever of lawyers probably do things on an hourly basis and not a hundred percent of them are expensive. Right. Um, so you want to definitely look at things and, and, and that goes across the board, even, well, we're talking here about, okay, looking at contracts, but it goes, it goes into litigation as well. If you're in a lawsuit and you're suing, if I, Michael, if you came to me and you said, hey, this company, this homeowner or this property owner owes us $3,000, can we hire you to? I'd be like, you could, but you know, let's talk about how we're going to go about doing this and, and what have you, because I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, you, you, I want you to pay thousands of dollars to chase something that's not worth thousands of dollars. Uh, and, and litigation quickly becomes that even if you're dealing with a case where there's like, let's say $20,000, you know, at stake, $20,000 in legal fees can happen pretty quickly in a lawsuit. Uh, and, and that's why, and there are mechanisms within the law to kind of prevent things from getting out of control. Like if it's, I believe the small claims court jurisdiction limits in Arizona are now like 2,500 bucks. So if it's something smaller than that, you can go and just file something directly as a company in small claims court without getting a lawyer and do it that way. Uh, if there's a case that has the, that's a little bit more in value, goes to superior court, uh, if it's Maricopa County and the mo- amount of controversy is less than $50,000 and it has to go through what's called a compulsory arbitration process, which is intended to be a cheaper and more expeditious route to getting a resolution than going through a full-blown litigation. Uh, so there are mechanisms in the law to kind of prevent 
the waste or the outrageousness of potential fees uh, and 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 looking at that in comparison to what the amount at stake is. But again, no matter where, where you cut it, it's always going to come down to some sort of cost benefit uh, analysis at any stage of dealing with with an, with an attorney. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really good point because as I said, our firm's kind of been going through this and I'm, I think it's a back to my earlier question about having good communication with your attorney. There was a stage early on in our business at which I said to an attorney who's a friend of ours and handles stuff for us, will you look at our boilerplate contract that I've sort of put together off of this website? And he said, much like you just said, I could, but I don't think you are ready to pay me to do that at this point. Now, five years down the road, our company's been around and I came back around to that conversation with him and he looked at a lot of things for us and actually put together a package for us that he's going to do, which is more than just looking at our contract. So having that open communication with him and, and going back and asking him the question more than once worked in our favor because we were able to put together more than just him looking at our boilerplate contract. There are other things that we also need his help with now that it makes sense from that risk yep. cost analysis. Yeah, and and I think also a lot of the question, you know, is going to depend upon what it is that is being looked at. You know, one thing that I I harp on all the time with folks, especially when I'm you know, doing labor and employment stuff, is as a company, regardless of your size, you want to make sure you have all of your employment related stuff in order. You should have an employee handbook. You should have policies, you know, for certain situations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those you really do want to have a lawyer look at and review because you want to make sure that they're done appropriately for the particular industry you're in and for the size of your company and what have you. I mean, I've had, I've had, uh, I had not too long ago a client say, Hey, we have a employee handbook. We want you to take a look at it, make sure everything looks all right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I go, okay, fine. I'll make revisions, updates. You want that stuff? Like, yeah, absolutely. There is one section in there. I won't go into too much detail that, they were offering a particular benefit to employees that they didn't have to offer because they weren't of the size that would the law would require them to offer. And I'm like, you know, you don't need to offer this, but by putting it in here, if you deny it, you're probably going to face a fight that you should be giving it because your policy is to give it. Yeah. Do you intend to do that? They go, Oh, we didn't know that. Right. Yeah. Let's take that out. I'm like, well, it's a good idea. I mean, it's kind, kind of you and all, but uh, you don't need to do it. And unless you're cognizantly, offering a benefit that you don't need to offer, then I want to make sure you, you know you're doing that. They didn't, and and we got that fixed. So when it comes to that kind of stuff, and especially when you think about Department of Labor, and even in Arizona, where it's more of an employer-friendly state than, say, for example, California is a very employee-friendly state, uh, you still want to make sure you have all of your you know, I's dotted and T's crossed when it comes to your labor and employment stuff, because at the end of the day, even in, again, a more employer-friendly state like this, Department of Economic Security still exists. They're still there to protect employees. And on the federal level, the Department of Labor still exists and is there to protect employees. So you want to make sure, regardless of size, scope, et cetera, of your business, that you have an understanding of how things need to operate with your employees. And to the extent you need policies in place, handbook in place, et cetera, that those are properly tailored to your, your business function. Yeah, absolutely. I know you had said you had another question that you thought of earlier too, Michael. Yeah. So this question, um, it's again, maybe a little unique. Um, so we have a number of, 
we work with a tremendous number of subcontractors. Um, the reason for that is that is our main form of labor work. So when you think about the tradesmen who right, perform the repairs for us, they're going to be W-2 or they're going to be subcontractors. Um, most of the time we opt for subcontractors, especially as we're working into new markets. Well, oftentimes within the first couple of jobs you work with a subcontractor, like with most people, right? Within your first couple of moments of being with someone, you kind of set your first impression. Well, within the first couple of jobs, we get a good sense of if their actual trade set is good enough, as well as personality, all those sorts of things. Um, so we have a, a reasonably high turnover rate with subcontractors, um, at least in those first 30 days of being onboarded. And sometimes some of these subcontractors cause a tremendous amount of damage at properties. Um, clearly we're liable, so we handle that for our customers. Uh, what my question is, is um, well, number one, and I think the answer is yes, is it legal? And number two, to what extent could we do this or how often do you see this sort of thing? We've basically been hypothesizing about putting together an escrow account for whenever a, whenever a, a either kind of a, there's a few ways we were thinking about doing it. The execution isn't necessarily so important. Um, it's, oh, do we reserve a percent of what we pay out to them? Or do we reserve maybe uh, a quarter of of what we pay them until we get to uh, an escrow of about a thousand or two thousand dollars per contractor? Uh, the question, Justin, is you know how prevalent is the use of escrow accounts with subcontractors, especially in this sort of we work in a small ticket market. Our average ticket is about four hundred dollars. That is that is a job for a customer. Um, just kind of wanted to hear your general thoughts on that concept when in you, that area. When you say escrow, you mean, so if if a, a contractor is doing jobs, it gets escrowed up until they hit a certain threshold and then it gets paid out just to save on kind of the admin costs and what have you? Yeah. So the idea is if we work with a tech and that tech ends up, he works out for the first few weeks, but then maybe he, something he misses three jobs and we have a cause with our con with some of our customers where we'll be fined a hundred dollars if they miss a job. Well, we didn't intentionally miss the job. We missed it because our subcontractor was unable to meet it for some reason, this or that. And we do have within our subcontractor agreement that we're well within our rights to charge them back. However, if they ghost on us, like, you know, that, that, that's just something that happens a lot today. I mean, anyone like, any millennials who date, like ghosting is terrible for them. And they're familiar with that concept. So if, if we basically can't get in touch with this contractor and we're out of pocket the money, well, that's that. We have to eat it. The idea of the escrow is to protect ourselves from someone being able to just up and disappear. Right. And, you know, I, I honestly, I haven't seen that done. And that's not to say it it, it isn't done uh, or can't be done. Uh, you know, the Thinking off the cuff, the, the concern I would have immediately, and maybe this is something we talk a little bit off air too, off, off, sure. off, uh, off, off the record, if you will, is the appearance of, okay, well, we're, we're escrowing some of these funds with the idea to be to kind of keep the contractor uh, you know, in, within our reach, within our access, whatever the case might be. Well, 
if you're holding back money from jobs that have been completed, how does that play into the entire autonomy thing? If 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 they stop communicating with you, um, shouldn't they technically have the right to do that because they're an independent contractor? They should be allowed to say, "We don't. I don't want to do that job. I don't want to do that job for you. I don't want to work with you at all." Whatever the case might be. And then if you're saying, okay, well, we paid, you know, person A, five, it was a $500 job and we held back, you know, $50 of it, paid him for 50. And that's something that, you know, continues. Then, then you're starting to look like, well, you're doing that because you expect the guy to keep coming back and working for you. Is that going to start undermining the concept of independence and, and autonomy, like Tanya said earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, so my immediate concern would be how that interplay and like i said before when you're talking about an employee relationship versus an independent contractor relationship a lot of times you're going to look at the particular circumstances of the of the of the relationship at issue to determine what the what the appropriate categorization is and my my concern like i said is having any sort of control and i can see that as being you know deemed control you know you're mm-hmm. you're holding back money because you're worried about how they're going to do their job uh, I can see that being some of that undermines, at least to some degree, the existence of an independent contractor relationship. Now, does that mean that you weigh all the factors? So let me step back. It's not like there's not one factor that's determined. So, okay, well, we've got that. But if we've got eight other things that show he's truly independent, maybe that one factor won't won't tip the scale. But I think you need to look at the entirety of the relationship as a whole to really determine are we okay taking this approach? And if we do take this approach, what kind of exposure are we giving ourselves? Um, what are our risks here? And is it worth that risk to have this input? That makes a lot of sense. So the answer is it depends. It depends. Perfect lawyer answer. To just throw in my two cents too, I do see there being some, because I work mostly in the space of larger commercial subcontractors, right? So they are definitely a subcontractor. They're being hired by a general contractor to come in and perform a large amount of work over a long period of time. And yet those general contractors will hold a 10% retention, which kind of sounds like a similar thing to me. So that's the first thing that came to my mind is if you were to call it retention and just say, we hold a certain percentage of retention on each job. Would that make any difference? Do you think, Justin? Um, I guess it could. It's it, it's going to depend on how that plays out, like long long term, right? So, when I think of retention, and and either of you guys can correct me if I'm looking at this from a perspective differently, and 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 maybe not along the lines of how it operates uh, in the in in practice, but. I think retention, okay, they're paying out, they're re- retaining, but then at, at some point, presumably at the end of that particular job, it's going to get all paid out. True. When you're dealing with these guys who it sounds like are doing repairs, you know, I'm person A might do a repair at unit A and then a repair at unit B and never be back there again. Well, okay, if you call it a retention on unit A, well, wouldn't you just retain it and pay it right back? Um, if, if it's, if it's, kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for here. Um, it's, it's amassing over multiple projects. It seems less of a retention goes back to the concern that I had expressed initially. Now, is there a way to do it? Um, it probably could be, but like I said, we, we might have to, might have to brainstorm that a little bit, a little bit more um, in, in terms of how to go about that. Uh, and yeah, I'll leave that at that. <laughs> No, I like to see the wheels turning in your head, though. I love that. Yeah, yeah, to solve yeah. a problem, solve a puzzle. 
So, well, it's one of those things too, like lawyers, like we, we, we think, at least me, I think out, I think out loud a lot. Um, <laughs> but then when we're on, you know, in a, in a format like this, and there's a question, I, I need to be careful because I don't want to give you legal advice that really technically isn't legal advice, it's more my, 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 my thinking aloud, nor do I want to give you legal advice that you might use. And then all of a sudden there's no attorney client privilege because I've told you this on, on, a, on a published uh, podcast episode. Uh, so in the hypothetical world that you're speaking of, Michael, there could be a way about doing it. And in this hypothetical world, we could hypothetically talk about it maybe a little bit more. Um, but uh, those are the, the, the potential concerns, uh, drawbacks I would see from, from, a, from a hypothetical uh, contractor's uh, decision to take this type of approach. So we're going to take the, we're going to put the full disclaimer on at the end of this podcast <laughs> that Justin was offering no one any legal advice this entire podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, I think um, one of the things too, that I really wanted to, um, to touch on, and I think we did a little bit earlier, but um, Michael, when you guys look to hire a lawyer or have a lawyer um, look into your contracts or things like that, at what point does it occur to anyone on your team to maybe say, is this something we should take it to the lawyer? That's a great question. Um, typically, if we, so when I think about what documents we've typically taken to our lawyer, uh, we've had uh, large legal disputes. So uh, kind of like Justin said, anything, um, once it starts getting around 20,000 or so, we definitely bring those things to a lawyer and we engage them kind of moving forward on those items. Because most of the time, I don't think what we're dealing with is tremendously difficult. It's, oh, it's a home renovation. Here's our contract. Everything's kind of laid out and it's just working through the process. So for us, we've had, I want to say in 10 years, we've had three large legal disputes of that nature. We have our subcontractor agreement, which we make. Um, Sorry, is there a, never mind. I, I thought there was a noise going on in the background. Um, we have our standard subcontractor agreement that we typically review, I would say every 24 months. So we take a look at, okay, how we make a list of all the additions we want to make to it. We run a first pass on those additions and, uh, and we kind of highlight those and, and ask that our lawyer review it um, when you know, regular intervals of that nature. Standard reviews of our subcontractor agreement, uh, large legal cases. Those are the two areas we've engaged with lawyers on. Um, there hasn't been- thinking specifically in terms of like something that Justin brought up earlier. What, the, what about those little one-off things where somebody might say, oh yeah, hey, my friend's gonna come in on Saturday and help us. Like, I think my question for both of you, because it's just something that I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts on is, how how do you know? Like, when is it a good idea to say, okay, because it doesn't seem like something I would think to bring up to the lawyer. Hey, uh, Michael's going to come in and help us over the weekend because we just have a lot of work, extra work, and he's free on Saturday. So like, I mean, those kinds of weird one-off things, how do you even know that that's something that you might need to, to bring up? Or how does that even come up? Huh. For us, um, we don't have people come in and help. If someone's coming in, I'm asking, are they coming in as a W-2 employee or a subcontractor? If it's neither, then they're not coming in. Yeah. Uh, they're not going on our work sites. Um, with, with us in particular, I mean, if someone was on a work site and they're not employed by us in any way, we could be facing a lot of liability. Yeah. So 
we don't really have that happen other than maybe my 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 collegiate nephew who like maybe we do pay him as a subcontractor. we actually do so typically anytime we've had anyone come in we'll pay him as we'll pay them somehow if they're providing any service in any way shape or form uh we want to have that we want to have an established agreement with them um we don't often have people just step in and help it's nice to know that in arizona free labor is just out there I think uh, I think the idea is uh, procedure and protocol, right? Like at the end of the day, the the older that your company gets, the more it grows, um, the more you really need to have like good proper procedures and protocols in place so that everybody knows. Yeah, it's not okay to have your mom come in and, and help us do the accounting on the weekend. Like uh, you, you need to run that through the proper procedures and protocols of the of the company as a whole. So, so, so that's a great point. I guess for us, it breaks down pretty easily then. Um, if we're working with anyone that is a vendor or anyone that is not directly involved in the completion of work, um, I typically engage with them. So I'll talk to all those vendors, all those sorts of things, all those individuals. Um, so I'll see everything that is non-labor related and for anything that is labor related, like, oh, my friend is a great plumber and we can get him on a job. Yeah, we can, but we have an onboarding process and we have a vendor management department and they need to get signed up through there. So we think of it in terms of administrative and non-administrative. Um, if it's not administrative, there's a department for that. If it's administrative, there's a department for that. That's good. But everyone just needs to stay in their lane, not in a negative way, but in an extremely positive way. When everyone stays in their lane, work gets done correctly and everyone knows who's holding the ball at any given time. Right. I love that. Yeah. Cause you and I've worked together long enough, Michael, you know, that that's, I'm huge on like written procedures about who's supposed to do what and when. So yeah, it's good stuff. Well, thank you guys both so much. I don't know about you, but I felt like this was really productive. I learned a lot of good stuff in this conversation. So I appreciate you guys both being able to take time out of your day and come join me. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I appreciate you having, having uh, us on and I, I certainly enjoyed it as well. I think it was, I think it was educational. Hopefully, hopefully some of my feedback helped helped you all. And uh, if any and again, follow questions there might be, let me know. Gave no legal advice this entire podcast. Just so we everything, all are clear, everything was hypothetical and um, yes, not legal advice. If you would like actual legal advice, reach out to Tanya. She'll give you my contact information. Give me a call. Then then we can talk. Don't reach out to me for the legal advice, but I can put right. you in touch with Justin. Precisely. <laughs> and Michael Precisely. gave no legal advice either. So just no, over there. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your Monday. Thank you. Thanks you too. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Construction Junction. To find out more about the junction between accounting and construction, please email hello at theprofitconstructors.com.